the subject of hell, it's a, uh, it's a reality that most people, even a lot of professing Christians, would rather not hear about, rather not talk about it, probably rather not even think about it. And that's certainly understandable. Um, the notion of a, a place of eternal conscious torment, which is how God's word describes hell, is to many people, again, even many professing Christians, just too abhorrent to believe. And so many people refuse to believe in it. In fact, uh, nearly every popular cult today denies what the scripture plainly teaches about hell. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists both insist that no human soul will ever, ever remain in hell. Uh, Those who have lived an evil life, a wicked life, they say, will simply die and go out of existence. Uh, Mormons, another cult, that Mormons do believe in a place called outer darkness, but it's a place in which only demons and exceedingly evil souls will ever occupy. And they teach that everyone else, whether they're repentant or unrepentant, believing or unbelieving, sanctified or living and dying in sin, will go to one level of heaven or another. And even uh, professing Christians and well-known theologians such as uh, Clark Pinnock reject the biblical view of hell. But what I would like to do this morning is ask and answer from the scriptures this question. What does Jesus have to say about hell? It's ironic that Jesus is often portrayed today as as being only ever gentle and mild and meek, uh, never angry, never bold, or never offensive to people. A lot of Christians today, if they were to see a a street preacher talking loudly on a public sidewalk about hell, might probably think to themselves, Jesus would never do that. Um, And yet, I would like to submit to you and even prove to you that Jesus probably looks a lot more like that sidewalk street preacher than you might think. Uh, this is going to be a, a topical this sermon this morning, so it's a bit different um, than our normal uh, verse-by-verse teaching. We're going to go through various scriptures. But I'd like to cover four points this morning, so just to give you an outline up front, uh, the points that I'm going to cover as we study what our Lord has to say about this subject together. Uh, We're going to talk about the reality of hell, um, the resolution or the the finality uh, of hell, the the reason for hell, and then finally, the rescue from hell. But first, let's let's pray together. Father, I pray that this morning you would bless your people. I pray that you would build us up in our faith, that you would renew our minds and renew our understanding according to your word. I pray that you would keep me from any error, help me to be faithful to what your word teaches. Um, And I pray, Lord, uh, for anyone here who does not yet know you, may today be the day that they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that you would use this time, this next time that we have together, uh, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first, the reality of hell. 
Um, hell is a real place. It, it's a place of which our Lord Jesus Christ spoke of often. In fact, Jesus spoke more about the reality of hell than any prophet of the Old Testament or any apostle in the New Testament. In his Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In, in chapter 10, again, of the Gospel of Matthew, he tells his disciples this. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then in chapter 25 of Matthew, uh, Jesus speaks of the eternal judgment of the wicked, and he says, quote, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus speaks often of the reality of hell in the, in the Gospels. And when he does, um, Jesus' words are recorded in the Gospels, and the word that it, for hell that is used repeatedly, that he uses, is the word Gehenna. Which, Gehenna is a, a transliteration from an Aramaic word. It's an Aramaic form of, of two Hebrew words, Ge, which means valley, and Hinnom. Uh, so it's the, the valley of Hinnom. And, and people of Jesus' time knew what this was. Um, the, the people that were Jesus' contemporaries knew this was a real place. It was, the valley of Hinnom was a place uh, near Jerusalem, but outside of Jerusalem, that everyone uh, Jesus spoke to knew about. It was where some of the Israelites had sacrificed their children to a, an idol called Moloch. And because of this historic evil, it was afterward regarded as a place of abomination. It was, it was made a receptacle for all of the garbage and uh, refuse of the city. And it was here that um, dead bodies of animals, uh, even bodies of criminals, all kinds of filthy things were, that were cast, and they were consumed by a fire that was kept always burning. And so thus, in the process of, of time, it became a metaphor for a place of everlasting destruction. Perpetual fires had to be kept burning in order to prevent uh, the spread of pestilence and, and disease. And so Jesus regularly uses this term as a metaphor for the reality of hell. So Jesus depicts hell as a place of continual burning, continual destruction. Um, and is, it was a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, but will also be shared by human souls who refuse to repent and who die and who are judged in their sins and in rebellion against God. Uh, and he also describes hell in a couple of other ways in Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 22 as a place of outer darkness. He says it's a place of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark 9.48, Jesus says that hell is a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And that phrase is actually a quote. The phrase that Jesus uses, that where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, is actually a quote from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 66.25, the very last book of Isaiah, uh, God says, And they shall go out 
and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So, that is the reality of hell according to Jesus. It is a a real place prepared by God for real demons and, uh, and, and human souls, and it's a place of of darkness, of weeping, a place of God's wrath, a place of continual burning and uh, continual destruction. Imagine the worst pain that you've ever felt, and you probably haven't even come close. It's a, it's a bitter and a terrifying picture. It's a picture that we would probably rather not look at. But it's one that we must look at, because our Lord tells us it is true, it's a reality, and so we must believe his word. We can't uh, just pick out promises and comforts spoken by Christ that we like and then discard or ignore the warnings of Christ that we, that we dislike. You have to accept all of his teaching or you reject all of it. Another word used uh, for hell in the, in the New Testament is a Greek word, uh, Hades, and this word has a broader semantic range, but it usually means just the the unseen realm of the dead, but it too is pictured as a dismal place. And uh, Jesus talks about this place um, also as a place of torment, and he talks about it in Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, Jesus uh, gives a parable of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And, uh, And after they die, Lazarus is carried up uh, by angels to be with Abraham at his side, and the rich man goes down to the word is is Hades uh, in the Greek. And in verses uh, 23 to 24 of Luke 16, Luke records these words. Uh, Jesus says of the rich man, in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So Jesus depicts Hades also as a place of agony and fire. It's a a horrid place and a holding place where the souls of the wicked are kept until the final resurrection and judgment. We see this also in Revelation 20, verses 12 to 14, which, speaking of the resurrection, the final resurrection and judgment, it says, The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So this is a place where the souls of the wicked are held and punished until the final judgment and sentencing to the lake of fire. Peter, when he writes his second letter, he uses the same, he talks about the same kind of place using a different Greek word. In 2 Peter 2.4, he says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. The word for hell in this verse is the Greek word tartaru, which, in the, which the Greeks understood to mean a place of eternal punishment for demons and wicked people. So this is the reality of hell as described by Jesus and the apostles. 
a place of continual burning, continual punishment, a place of darkness, uh, a holding place, a a place of sorrow and weeping, a, a place where wicked souls gnash their teeth. That's the reality of hell. Secondly, the resolution of hell. What does the Bible say about about the finality of hell, the, the eternality of hell? It says very clearly that hell is final and hell is eternal. Again, back to Luke 16, 24 to 26, Abraham says to the rich man, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us uh, and, and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that none who wish to come over from here to you, they will not, they will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So, so hell is not a purgatory. There is no such thing as purgatory. That concept is completely foreign to Scripture. No one who goes to hell gets out, ever. The wicked never finish being punished for their sins. They have sinned against an infinitely holy holy God, and there is nothing in Scripture indicating that they ever repent. And so, truly, they are deserving of eternal punishment. There is no parole, no lessening of the sentence. There are no second chances. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 2.9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Unfortunately, not every Christian pastor or church teaches this truth. There are even well-known theologians, like I mentioned earlier, such as Clark Pinnock, who teach a heretical view called annihilationism with regard to this subject. And while I was uh, researching this, I found it very ironic. Um, In uh, his contribution to a book called Four Views on Hell, uh, Clark Pinnock says, quote, Evangelical theology starts with the Bible and asks what the scriptures have to say about the nature of hell. So in other words, he's trying to say that, you know, I'm making my argument for annihilationism based on the scriptures. And so he seeks to make the, yeah, seeks to make the case that, that, that those, that's the basis of his, of his arguments. And yet, in another book entitled Theological Crossfire, uh, Pinnock admits, he admits, he says this, quote, I was led to question the traditional belief in everlasting conscious torment because of moral revulsion and broader, broader theological con- considerations, not, first of all, on scriptural grounds. So it's ironic that in one sense he says he's trying to make, the, make his case for annihilationism on Scripture, but then in another place he says, no, he was led to question that, not, based, not first of all on scriptural grounds, not on what God's Word says, but on his own emotions about the subject. And I think that's what leads many people to question and deny um, the, the, the finality of hell and the eternality of hell. And, but, it, you know, if I've talked to people about this before on the streets, and there are actually many verses in Scripture which could very well persuade a, a person, if you're not well-taught and well-studied, that, that hell is not eternal. 
Um, when the Bible speaks of the punishment of the wicked, the terms most often used are words like perish, uh, death, and destruction. And so these words and verses, when compiled together and then with other verses, other words and verses left out, could easily persuade someone that, that hell is a place where wicked souls are just destroyed and go out of existence. It's very similar to arguments that people make against the deity of Christ or, uh, or against the doctrine of the Trinity. All you have to do is emphasize some words and some verses and, and de-emphasize others. And you can paint quite a different picture than the one that's actually painted by the totality of Scripture. But again, let's, let's go back and see what Jesus teaches. What does Jesus teach about the resolution, the finality of hell? In Matthew 25, going back to these verses, when Jesus talks to his disciples about what's the final day of judgment going to be like, he, he tells them, he says, He will say to the wicked, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the, the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I was naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then he says, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so you can see the comparison and the contrast there. Eternal punishment, eternal life. And so this passage makes it clear that just as heaven is eternal, hell is also eternal. The souls of the wicked are not annihilated. They do not go out of existence. It is not a temporary punishment. It is an eternal punishment. In the same way, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 says, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. There's that word again, eternal. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. And so hell is not temporary. It's final and it's eternal. So we talked about the reason or the uh, reality of hell, the resolution of hell. The, the hell is a real place. That what it's what it's like. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, uh, a, pla- a place of um, eternal punishment, and that it's that it's eternal. That, that it is uh, final. And there are no second chances, and that it goes on forever. Just as heaven goes on forever, hell also goes on forever. What about the reasons? What, are the, what, what, what is the reason for hell? Who sends people to hell? And why do people get sent there? Well, the Bible is clear that it's, it's God is the one who sends people to hell. Again, in Matthew 25, we read that he, referring to Jesus, will also say to those on his left, depart from me. Uh, so it's not the wicked saying to Jesus, depart from us. It's Jesus saying to the wicked, depart from me. Uh, this orthodox biblical teaching stands in contrast to even some of the teachings of otherwise very, very much faithful and respected Bible teachers in our day, uh, such as Tim Keller. I think Tim Keller is a faithful, was a faithful pastor 
But uh, st- even faithful pastors can get it wrong on certain things. And in a sermon that he preached in 2006, Keller writes, quote, Hell is just your freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell, unquote. Uh, later in the same sermon, Keller says, quote, it's, it's not something imposed by God in violence, is it? And in his sermon, Keller actually, uh, later in his sermon, Keller actually mocks the idea that God throws people into hell uh, to the laughter of his congregation. Uh, but what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Thrown by who? Not thrown there by themselves. They don't throw themselves into there. No, they, they're thrown by God. And scripture does make it clear that, that no one who is not regenerated by the Holy Spirit wants God. Scripture does make that clear. But it never suggests that people want to go to hell or that they, they just you know, jump in or send themselves there. And it, explicit, it does explicitly teach us that God throws people into hell and he punishes them in hell and holds them in hell. Not because God is sadistic, but because God is a God of holy, righteous, and just anger against sin. He's patient. He's not willing that any perish, his word says. He says his word says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he is also a God of wrath. He cannot, he will not, he does not turn a blind eye to sin. He is a God who is angry with the wicked every day, the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 7. So people don't send themselves to hell. We don't have that kind of power. We don't have that kind of authority. It's, it's God who sends people to hell. And it's actually good and right and just for him to do so. And so why? Why does God send people to hell? Again, the Bible is clear that he does so because he is holy and just and because people have sinned against him. People often say, how can a loving God possibly send people to a place like hell? And the reason that people say that is because they don't understand how good and great God is and how wicked and evil their sin actually is. And so I'd like to give two illustrations to help us at least try to catch a glimpse of this. Um... To, to catch a glimpse of the greatness of God, of the goodness of God, and, about, and, and catch a glimpse of the sinfulness of sin in order to help us understand that when we see things from God's perspective, hell is actually reasonable. If I were to lie to my daughter, Lucy, what might the consequence of that be? She, you know, she might be mad at me. She would, yeah, she, hopefully she would forgive me. But there probably much, wouldn't be much of a consequence, right? Zeke, if I were to lie to my boss, what might the consequence be? Fired. Yeah, I could get fired, right? If I lie in court, we have a whole different word for that. We call it perjury. If I lie to a judge in a court of law, what happens to me then? Prison. I could go to prison. If I lie to a king or a queen. Yeah, Rachel did it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the consequence. So, so why is it different? 
It's the same sin. Whether I lie to my daughter or I lie to a king, it's the same sin. Why is the consequence so much more severe? Because it's not about the sin that I have committed. It's about who I have sinned against. See, in every sin that every person has ever committed is cosmic treason. It's, it's, it's treason against the creator and sustainer and king of the universe. It doesn't matter whether the sinner sees it that way or not. That's how it is. What about, so that's, that's, that's an illustration about the, the greatness of God, his, his authority, his power. It's a matter of his authority and his, um, his majesty that we, have, that we despise when we sin against him. What about the beauty and the goodness of God? How do, we see, how do we see sin in light of how good and how wonderful God is? If I, if I took advantage of a 40-year-old career con artist, that'd be one thing, right? I mean, some, some might even say he had it coming. But if I took advantage of an innocent child, that would be something completely different. I would, you probably have a very, people would have a very different reaction. If I, if I destroyed an ugly, worthless rag, that would be one thing, right? But what if it was a beautiful, priceless painting or, or a sculpture? When people sin against God, they are seeking to do harm to the most beautiful, loving, wonderful, and incredible being in all of existence. And so if we understood the, the greatness of, and the goodness of God, we could see why sin merits such terrible and eternal punishment. The reason that sin and hell are so bad is because God is so good. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his hearers, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and everyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Part of our problem as sinful, fallen human beings is that we think we know the impact and the consequences of our evil thoughts, words, and actions when we actually have no idea. That's the other thing. Is that, that, so this is just an illustration of the sinfulness of sin. If somebody kills someone, how long does it... It's a, in a 10-second in a shooting or... Uh, forces themselves on someone else in a, a gross act that, that takes 30 seconds or less, what are the consequences of that to the victims and their families? The, the perpetrator has no idea. They have no idea. They have no idea of the, the grief and the pain and the suffering that they've caused. How do you measure the value or, or potential of a life that's taken away in malice? How do you judge the impact of a trauma that will affect a person for the rest of their life because of one evil act that might have taken minutes or even seconds? 
But here's the reality. Even if we could somehow measure the damage done, it, it, doesn't come, it doesn't even come close to the reality of the offense that it is against God. God. Only God sees it rightly. We don't. We can't. We're used to sin. We, we are sinners. Sin is, in a sense, normal for us. So, so then how can we possibly expect to understand how evil even the slightest sin actually is? How ridiculously arrogant of us to say that we know better than God the kind of punishments that certain sins do or don't deserve. And so here's another part of the reality of the sinfulness of sin. My last point on this, this point um, and why it deserves hell, why, why it deserves something so terrible. Sin is not just the bad things we do. And this is, this is terrifying. That, uh, this is not an easy sermon to preach. Um, but sin is not just the bad things we do. It's also the, the good things we fail to do and refuse to do. Back in Matthew 25, Jesus says, again, going back to these verses, you've heard me say these a lot, talking about the final judgment, Jesus says, quote, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. You know what people have to do to deserve hell? In a word, nothing. According to those words of Jesus that I just read, that's all it takes. Just, just refuse to help. Just be selfish and refuse to serve God or those created in his image and, and in his likeness. And you will be worthy of hell in his sight. Imagine, you know, if there was a, a young child drowning in a pool while an adult stood by and, and watched and did nothing, we would certainly say that that person is worthy of punishment. So in the same way, our, our Creator, having given us a conscience which prompts us to say and do good when we're able, both he and our own conscience condemn us for the times when we've refused to do that. Because of whatever reason, because of our cowardice, because of our selfishness. And so as James says, whoever sees the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So hell is real, it is, it is resolute or final and eternal, and it's reasonable when we consider the glory of God and the sinfulness of our sin. But the good news is that the one true God, the creator, sustainer, and king of the universe, is way, way better than simply being righteous and just. He is righteous, and he is just, and he hates sin, but he's also wonderfully, incredibly, unspeakably gracious, loving, merciful, and kind. And that's why he provided a rescue from hell. So there's an old worship song. Some of you who are around my age would know it. It's called Here I Am to Worship. It's one of my favorite worship songs. 
And one of, the, one of the reasons it's one of my favorites is a line in that song that says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. I don't think truer words have ever been spoken. The reason that Christians can have hope of being rescued from hell is because Jesus Christ suffered and died in their place. It's not, it's not possible to overstate the anguish of soul that Jesus endured while he took upon himself the wrath of God against our sin, the sins of those who repent and trust in him, while he took the wrath of God against sin on that cross in our place. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, tells of this great substitutionary atoning sacrifice, and Isaiah speaks of it hundreds of years before it happened. Isaiah says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. How many of us would give up our only son to be a sacrifice for the crimes that creatures far below us had committed against us? What kind of love does that take? That's what was required. A perfect human sacrifice for sin. Was not just a perfect human, someone who is more than just human, someone who is also divine, a God-man who was, was needed, who could actually bear the crushing weight of the wrath of Almighty God against the sins of all of God's people. And so our salvation was purchased by the anguish of his soul. No one ever knew pain like Jesus Christ knew pain, nor will anyone in history ever suffer to the degree that he suffered. It wasn't simply the physical suffering. That was a light and momentary affliction compared to the anguish of his soul. To get even a glimpse of the suffering and agony and anguish that Christ endured on the cross, you have to remember that he's not like us. We, we, have, experience, we have experience in living in the condition of being separated from God, but Jesus had enjoyed eternal, unbroken, perfect fellowship with his Father up until this point. At the cross. What Christ had heard from his father at his baptism was the same thing he had heard from all of eternity. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. But now, on the cross, there is no comfort, there is no reassurance, there's no smile from God, and so Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God, who had enjoyed the smile and fellowship of his father from all eternity, never known anything different, has now become the object of his father's holy hatred and anger, and he endured the wrath, the pain, the anguish, the shame, and the guilt 
All of it. Why? So that he might justify the many. So that God can legally dismiss the case that he has against all sinners who have come to trust in Christ and believe in this rescue. And believe this good news. God can choose not to punish them and still be just because he punished his own son in their place. And so, hell is real. It's the real it is a reality. It is a place of, of darkness, of weeping, of a place of God's wrath, a place of continual burning and continual punishment. Hell is is final, resolute, it's it's eternal. No one ever gets out. Ever. There are no second chances. And hell is reasonable. In fact, it's it's the only reasonable consequence for creatures that have committed such atrocities in the face of such glory and majesty and beauty and goodness as that of Almighty God. But hell is also avoidable. To avoid hell, you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ because he is the only rescue. And so that's the call today. If you're here this morning and you haven't come to know Christ, the call is to turn from your sin and and trust in him. And I would plead with you, as I, I hope and pray the Holy Spirit is also pleading with you, if you haven't come to Christ, do it today. Don't, don't put it off. Today, if, he, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you need to talk to someone here, talk to one of the elders about the state of your soul and let us help you. Don't, don't put it off. Don't go to the next distraction. No one knows when they're going to die. And when you die, there are only two places that you can go heaven or hell. And when you die, it's too late. So while you still have time, while God has given you another breath and another heartbeat, trust him. Trust his son today. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's either heaven or hell. There is no in-between. There are no second chances. Cry out to God. Confess your sin to him. Believe in the one he has sent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rescue from hell. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, even the hard parts, the parts that we'd rather not look at, the parts that we'd rather not meditate on and think about. Thank you for your justice. You are a righteous and holy God. Because you are a God of love, because you, you are a God of perfect goodness, you hate evil. And one day, um, evil and those who do evil are going to be eternally separated from you and from all of your uh, goodness and blessings and benefits. Lord, uh, if there's someone here that hasn't realized that, um, may today be the day that they're awakened to that reality. And not only that reality, Lord, but even more so, the reality of your love for them, for us, for, for everyone, that you so love the world, that you sent your one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, 
but have eternal life. And so I pray, Lord, that um, the reality of your love would uh, dawn upon someone here even this morning who has been blinded to it up until this point, how great your love is, and that they would no longer be able to resist your great love for them, that they would, that they would surrender their life to you. Lord, um, thank you for being so good to, good to us, uh, for your patience and grace, uh, especially in light of what our, all of our sin deserves. Um, we praise you, we worship you, in Jesus' name, amen.